Very sweet. Thank you so much. You know, that's a wonderful hymn with a great message to it, isn't it? And truly, truly, when we get to heaven, we're going to think those thoughts and say those words. Ah, wish I wish I'd given him more. You know, I don't know about you, but I sometimes find myself uh, thinking that even now. I'm not even in heaven and I'm thinking, oh, you know, boy, over the years I've been saved, I wish I'd done more. Well, I could have done more. Hmm. Well, it sort of motivates me to want to do more now. Last month, we brought uh, a message on the table of the Lord, and that was part one. And uh, tonight is part two. So if uh, I may, I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we went through... uh, a portion of this uh, chapter. 1 Corinthians 11 is, I think without a doubt, the best source we have uh, for a fuller understanding of the table of the Lord and what it's all about. A month ago, uh, just under a month ago, I guess, we we looked at a part one of this two-part series on... um, rules for the uh, rules to go by for the table of the Lord. And we looked at three of them last month. The first one is that it's a local church, um, a local, a local um, uh, a church um, uh, element. And it's something that's to be done within the context of the local church. The local church, our local church anyhow, basically meets here in this building. But uh, if our local church met some other place, there is the church, there is the local church. Uh, the Lord gave this uh, to local churches. It's not given to families, it's not given to government, it's not given to parachurch organizations. It's not right for uh, Christians to get off on their own, um, have a cup of coffee at uh, Starbucks and have communion. It's, uh, it's not meant that way. The whole idea of the uh, table of the Lord is to be done uh, within the context of the local church. The second uh, rule is there needs to be unity within the church. If there's division, then you're not to um, celebrate the table of the Lord. The the wonderful thing, um, you know, they say that the ground at the foot of the cross is equal, and that puts us all on equal footing before the Lord And so when we have division within the church, some think they're a little higher than others, you see, and can't have that. There needs to be a a common bond. And it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, uh, black or white, male or female, bond or free. In Christ, um, we're all the same. And we've got uh, a commonality. And the third uh, rule we looked at last month was it's for saved people. It's not for unsaved people to partake in. It's for saved people. Now, last month also, we dealt with, um, because it's here in chapter 11, the uh, head coverings on women. Um, There are some churches that uh, really believe strongly that women should have head coverings when they come into the church. And um, we um, we don't hold that. What you would need to do, I think, is when you get home, 
uh, pull out your internet and go on our website and look up the last message. Um, it would be Sunday, July 14th. So uh, look that up and start watching that message because we deal with this issue of the head coverings. And the bottom line is that um, it was a local thing in Corinth. And Paul even came out in verse 16 and said, but if any man seemed to be contentious, and you know, we still have contentious men today, we have no such custom, neither in the churches of God. And so we come now to two more rules for the communion service. Tonight is going to be a little more on the theology side, but you know, folks, we need that. We need doctrine. And uh, good doctrine, good sound doctrine, sort of has to be endured. It's uh, good meat and potatoes for the soul and the spirit. It's very important that we understand why it is what we do. It's very, very important. And so we're going to be looking at two more of these rules. Uh, some might call them guidelines, call them what you will, but they're definitely here in the scriptures. But we're going to look at a couple more, and uh, hopefully this will prepare our hearts to be able to go the next step, and that is to um, celebrate the table of the Lord tonight. So let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing before we begin. Dear loving Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for our salvation in Christ. Thank you for all of the incredible things you have done for us and continue to do for us. And we're not even aware of a tenth of the marvelous, mighty works of God in our lives. We're just so blind, aren't we, Father? Please open the eyes of our understanding. Help us tonight, Lord, to be strengthened in Christ and to understand a bit more perhaps what this table means and why it's special and how to approach it. Our Father, we ask that you'd continue to give us grace, give us knowledge of the scriptures, and give us the ability to hold the truth in love. Lord, we know that that church at Corinth had a lot of contention in it, not just over the table of the Lord, but on several other topics as well. They sure didn't have unity like they, they could have. Help us, Lord, never to be like that. Help us to understand and to know what the Bible says and to hold that precious truth in love. And so, dear Lord, lead us on now, please, as we finish up our study. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, rule number four is simply this. There must be no unconfessed sin in the heart. You can't approach the Lord's table with unconfessed sin in your heart or in your life. You can't have uh, your, your hand in the, the devil's cookie jar, so to speak, and then reach for uh, something on the Lord's table. No can do, folks. There must be no unconfessed sin in our hearts. Now, there, must, there should be no unconfessed sin at any time. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, sin is what nailed our Savior to the cross. Sin is nasty business. James made it very clear. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. Yeah, that's pretty serious, wouldn't you say? It can bring forth a uh, physical death, but it sure brings forth a spiritual death. And when we go messing around with sin, no wonder the great things God wants, us to, God wants to do in our lives seem to fall apart. 
No wonder the wheels fall off. No wonder the thing goes clunk. It's because there's unconfessed sin. So as we approach the table of the Lord, this is very serious. We are making a, uh, a statement to the Lord and a statement to one another. That as far as we know, our hearts are clean and pure before the Lord. So it's very important that we, uh, we keep this in mind. Now we're going to pick up here in chapter 11 and we're going to look at verse 23. Paul writes these words, for I delivered, sorry, for I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now the bread that they would have used would have been Passover bread, because it was the Passover time. And the Passover bread was to be made without um, the yeast. You know, these nice big puffy loaves of bread. You ever driven past a, a bread, um, a bakery or bread factory, and you just get that that smell of that fresh baked bread? Wow, there's something about it that just kind of turns your head. Whoa, smell that! Where's that coming from? Well, that's not this kind of bread because there's no yeast. Back then, they called it leaven, and essentially, what they would do is they take a piece of sourdough. And they would stick that in the, the big lump as they were kneading the new uh, bread. And that would cause the, the rising. It's a fermentation. That's what the chemists tell us. And so it was called leaven. And the, it was flat bread. It had no yeast. It had no leaven in it. Yeast represented, uh, for the Passover time, it was used as a principle of sin. And uh, they were called the days of unleavened bread. And what the Jewish families would do back then, they still do today. Well, not all of them, but many of them. Is they, when they come up to Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go through the home and they get the, the leaven, the yeast, uh, even the crumbs, they get it out. They use picks as well. And they'll open up their, their cupboards and they'll go carefully in the corners and they'll get it all out. They even make a game of it. The children have a game for when dad comes home and they hide... Uh, something that's supposed to represent leaven or actually maybe even it is a little piece of sourdough and they'll hide it somewhere and dad will go searching for it. They make a game out of it. But the principle of it was to get the sin out. That was what the teaching was all about. Get the sin out. And that's why the bread that Jesus used, broke and gave to the disciples that night, it was flat. It had no vanilla extract in it. It had no salt. It had no caramel. There was no um, strawberry uh, um, preserves spread across it. It was as flat as can be, as tasteless as it could be. But it represented the body of Christ. Christ, Jesus gave a new meaning to it. And so um, the, the yeast represented sin and the sin's got to go. The Lord's Supper is part of worship. Does that make sense? It's part of worship. And how in the world can we worship the Lord with sinful hearts? How can that be? That's not going to fly. God can see right into our dirty hearts and He can see. Sin is the very thing that separates us from God. It would be almost like you showing up at a wedding and your hands are dripping with blood and it's the blood of the bridegroom the bridegroom's blood is on your hands and you're showing up at his wedding. 
That wouldn't go over too well, don't you think? That's pretty bad. And that's just about the picture of showing up, parking our feet under the Lord's table with sin in our hearts. We've chewed someone's head off. We've opened our mouth and said a bunch of dirty words or wordy dirds or whatever you want to call them. Taken things without permission, never gave them back, never even said sorry. Now, us Christians, we don't go robbing banks or nothing like that. We don't go uh, uh, shooting up people. Oh, there was another big shoot-up down in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. Maybe you saw that in the news. We just had the one uh, Friday there uh, in a Walmart in El Paso. 20 people killed, something like that. Well, this one just happened in the wee hours this morning. I just found out about it this afternoon. And um, about 10 people were killed and a a bunch more were injured. And all this happened so fast. From what I understand, from when the gunman started shooting, in 30 seconds, he killed all these people, wounded others, and he himself was shot to death. All within 30 seconds. Incredible, isn't it? Wow. Well, there's no way that we can um, show up at the Lord's table with sin in our hearts. And as I say, you know, Christians aren't aren't so much guilty of you know the big pow 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 murders and things like that. But we are guilty of lying, entertaining bad, evil thoughts, saying things we shouldn't, breaking promises. Oh, but they're just little foxes. Yeah, and the Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. So, sin is sin. It's nasty business. And we've got to deal with it. Now, let's examine this bread and the cup. In verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In other words, it's done for you. You don't have to do it. That's why... Uh, in the Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass, they have a re-crucifixion of Christ. That's what the Roman Catholic Mass pictures. A re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that's not biblical. Because Christ died once. The Bible is very clear, very emphatic on that. He died once. You don't keep re-crucifying the Savior. The Savior's not on the cross anymore, is He? He's risen. And so to have a cross with, with a representation of Jesus on it, not really quite right because he, he's done all of that. The cross is empty. We have a cross on the front of the pulpit here. Now this particular cross is all nice and clean and everything, but the real cross, boy, I bet you it was a horrible mess. Stained with his blood and all rough and everything like that. That's probably more a true picture of the cross. But getting here to the, the bread, The bread represents his body. It's done as a memorial, not as a sacrament. Now, how many have heard the word sacrament? You've heard that word? Raise your hand. The word sacrament. That's a fairly well-known word. Well, what is a sacrament? What does that mean? A sacrament, the word sacrament comes from a Latin word, sacricare, and it means to make sacred. To make sacred. That's what sacrament means, to make sacred. The idea being that you you come and and have this table of the Lord and as you partake, you become more sacred. That's not what happens. That's why we don't call it a sacrament. 
You don't become more sacred by partaking of the table of the Lord. Although if you do it right, I do believe God will bless you. The Roman Catholic Mass is called a sacrament. Now they also have a big word, a longer word, a real $15 word. It's called transubstantiation. Say that with me. Transubstantiation. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But what it means, it means that the the substance has been completely changed over to another substance. And what they teach in the Roman Catholic Mass is that when the priest, you know, says his Latin incantations over the, the bread, it magically changes into the actual physical flesh of Christ. And the wine, and they use 12 to 18% proof, wine in that cup, and he says his Anno Domini Ipso Facto Caveatemptor, he says all of his Latin over it, and that wine that he bought at the liquor store, that wine now magically transforms into another substance, the actual physical blood of Jesus Christ. And so... If you sat down at a table and someone put down a pound of human flesh and a pint of human blood and asked you to eat and drink, we have a word for people who do that kind of thing. What is it? Cannibal. Yeah. Cannibalism. Cannibalism is not sanctioned by the Bible. God never tells us to do such a thing. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 6, speaking to the Jews And he he spoke figuratively when he said, my body is flesh and my blood is drink. And the Jews strove amongst themselves like crazy. How can this man give us his, his flesh to eat? And the Bible says at that point that many turned and walked no more with him. Because Jesus had previously pointed out that all they wanted was the free bread. That's all they wanted. You know, it's amazing if you put on a feast, how many people will come out of the woodwork? It's true. You say, hey folks, I'm going to show a movie tonight. It's all about Jesus and about His love for us. And, you know, you're, you're waiting. People say they come, you're waiting, you're waiting. You hear the crickets, you know, in the background. The moon is rising. No one comes. But you say, hey, I'm going to have a feast. Anyone wants to come, eat good, come on. The whole neighborhood comes and they bring all their relatives. Place is back. Well, we've got to get back to this here. Um, The Lutheran Church, they came out of the Roman Catholic Church. The Lutherans used to be Catholics. They came out of the Catholics, and they brought with them certain things from the Catholic Church, and they also call this a sacrament. Only they, they don't call it transubstantiation, where it completely changes into the actual physical flesh and actual physical blood, They call it consubstantiation, in which somehow the body and blood is mixed spiritually, magically, somehow, we don't know how, with the bread and the wine. That's their belief on on the table of the Lord. They call it a sacrament as well. I believe that any church that calls the table of the Lord a sacrament is showing its roots in the Catholic Church. My belief only, maybe. Now, let's get to verse 25. Paul writes, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament of my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so the cup represents his blood. Please notice, it is never called wine. 
never called wine. I know the, uh, the word wine is used in the Bible. I read the Bible too. I've studied it for decades. I've read all kinds of books and commentaries. And by the way, I found, you know this, that I found what I believe is one of the best books on the market today that's exhaustive. And it teaches all about Bible and Bible wines. And the bottom line, the end chapter is alcoholic beverages, not for the Christian. There's a lot of um, particularly young Christians today saying, oh, well, Jesus drank wine and we want to drink wine too. So they go to the liquor store and they'll put back not just wine, but beer and sometimes even hard liquor and so on. They say, it's okay, it's okay, as long as I don't get drunk. What a bunch of baloney. You know, you take one drink, one good stiff drink, and I'm sure your blood level is above the legal limit. Every country's got a little different legal limit. You know that, right? And you cross that legal limit and you are considered legally drunk. Did you know that? My wife just had surgery a few weeks ago to get a, rid of a, a nasty kidney stone. And they had to give her these drugs to knock her out. It was her, it's a big rock. It was this big, okay, if you want to know. It was that big, I could hardly lift the thing. And so they, they put her under for all this. And uh, when sh she woke up, she was just kind of dopey a bit. But they said to her, for the next 24 hours, you are considered legally impaired. That's what they told her. Now, those of you that are nurses, you know that. You've heard that, haven't you? You're familiar with that. You're trained in all that stuff. So, if you're legally impaired, they tell you before you leave the hospital, do not drive a motor vehicle. Do not sign any contracts for the next 24 hours. Even though you, you feel awake and all that, you're still considered legally impaired. In some countries, you know, the, the blood alcohol level is here. In other countries, they make it higher. In other countries, they make it lower. So who's right? Well, I think God's right, really, because I don't think that recreational alcohol has any place in the Christian life. Maybe you disagree. That's fine. You're allowed to. You're not under law. You're under grace. But I do think you're making a mistake. I think the best thing you can do if you have any of that stuff in your home is get rid of it. Don't sell it. Don't give it to your, your friends or your enemies. Just pour it down the sink. Let the fish drink it. Get rid of that. Because you may have good control over your consumption, but I'll bet your kids won't. And your kids will get used to seeing you plop that bottle on the table. Can I have some? No, you're too young. And one day they'll get into it. They'll always take it a little further than what you will. Kids do that. That's what happens. And that's where a lot of alcoholics come from. Anyhow, it's best to err on the side of caution here, folks. But the Bible here in verse 25, it never calls it wine. It calls it uh, the fruit of the vine in Matthew chapter 26. But it never calls it wine. Why? So that no mistake is ever made. There is no alcohol in that beverage. It contains no alcohol. There can be no confusion. There's no yeast in the bread. There's no alcohol in the grape juice. Now in verse 25, it, uh, it's called the New Testament in my blood. A testament means a will. A will that you draw up before you die. And so the will, the idea of a will, is what's going to be done with your body and your assets, your, your, your living things that, that live on after you. Uh, what it's, what's going to be done with all these things after you die? 
Now, while, while the person is still alive, the will is of no effect. Legally, you have to die in order for the will to come into legal effect. Um, this is scriptural. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, it says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. The testator is the guy who writes the testament, the guy who writes the will. The will is of no effect until a guy dies. And then the will comes into effect and says, you get this, you get that, this happens here, this happens there. That's when the will comes into effect. Uh, the same chapter in Hebrews says, for a testament, that's the will, is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now in verse 25, it's called a testament, but it's called the New Testament. You notice that? The New Testament. That would be in comparison with the Old. The Old Testament, the New Testament. Now, the reference here is to the Law of Moses. This was the Old Testament, the Old Will. A testament... Uh, is God, how God deals with His people. And the old one was done with law through Moses. It really came into effect after Moses died. That's why Moses couldn't go into the promised land. And the Jews got in the promised land. They had all the laws of Moses. That was the old will, the Old Testament. The new testament, the new will is grace. The old is law. In fact, please keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 11 and turn to the right to the book of Hebrews. We'll, we'll go there right now and just take a quick little look at it. Hebrews chapter 9. Put a little bookmark there in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be back. In fact, maybe we'll be back to uh, Hebrews after we leave it. Now Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll look please at verse 15. Hebrews 9 and 15. It says, And for this cause he is the mediator, that's Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament, that's this new covenant, if you will, um, that by means of death, because he had to die in order for it to come into, come into play, for by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that would be Moses and the law, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And look at verse 18 whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. The first would be Moses, and all the blood of bulls and goats. Verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. So Moses said this back in Exodus 24. And... Uh, this is the testament. This is what you will be living under. This is what's going to happen. Verse 21, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by law purged with blood. Now you should have these next words underlined in your Bible. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It pictures what was yet to come. The shedding of Christ's blood. Look at chapter 10. And verse 28. He that despised Moses' law, that would be the first testament, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So now look at verse 21. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy 
who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Wow! So if they put him to death under the, the first testament, and they were guilty of sin under the first one, how much more under the second one? Because it's the blood of Christ himself. The Old Testament was God's dealings with his people based on law. The New Testament is God's dealings with his people based on grace. Now, we know what law is. Uh, grace is a state of agreement. It's a state of agreeable pleasing with the giver, such as God, a giver such as God, toward a recipient such as you and me, the humble humans, causing God, the giver, to bestow gifts and blessings upon the recipient. That is what grace is. Someone has made the acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And there is some truth to that, but that is not a proper understanding of grace. Grace is a state of agreeable pleasing within God toward us, allowing Him to bestow gifts and blessings. And I'll tell you what one of the biggest blessings is that we have in this age of grace is God has given to us the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that in the Old Dispensation, the Old Testament. They didn't have that. The Holy Spirit would come and go upon a man. But most never got the Holy Spirit. Now, according to Romans chapter 8, every saved person has the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah! It's that Holy Spirit that helps to build Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to pray. It's the Holy Spirit that acts as our, our comforter, our strengthener, our guide, our teacher. Oh my! Hallelujah! For the Holy Spirit. Samson had the Holy Spirit only for another purpose. Saul had the Holy Spirit for yet another purpose. We have the Holy Spirit so that we can become more like Jesus. Boy, I like the sound of that. That's good stuff in my book. The Holy Spirit is given to every Christian. So, verse 25. This is the New Testament in my blood. If you go back to um, 1 Corinthians, put your marker there, please, in Hebrews. I think we may be back. Um... Moses' law required the blood of bulls and goats. And that's in Hebrews 9, we saw that. The blood of bulls and goats was meant to cover sin. Just like your trash can, you throw your trash in and you cover it. If you don't cover it, the little creatures can get in there, the flies and the, the little um, uh, bugs and things can crawl in there and worms and so on. You cover your trash. And that's what the the blood of bulls and goats would do under the, the First Testament, Moses' law. But Paul wrote in Hebrews 10.4, it is not possible that the bull, blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. All it could do was cover it. And every year they would cover, 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 year after year, century after century, until Christ, the Lamb of God, came, shed His blood and took away the sin of the world. And he acted as the garbage man for us. He did an amazing work for you and for me in taking away the sin of the world. Now the law of God came to the Old Testament, Old Testament believers and it came bathed in the blood of bulls and goats to cover sin. Grace of God comes to the New Testament believer, to us, bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, which washes away all sin. Now make no mistake here, this is very important. 
People can only be saved by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Just because Christ died for, for us, for the world, for you and for me, died on the cross, does not automatically mean we're going to heaven. Possibly you're here tonight and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to heaven. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because I go to church. That's not going to take you to heaven. Oh, well, because I read the Bible. That's not going to take you to heaven either. Because I pray? No, that won't take you to heaven. What about giving? Giving's got to count for something. Eh? Put your money where your mouth is. I give. That's not going to get you to heaven. Well, what can get me to heaven? Jesus Christ. He is the only one able, capable to take anyone to heaven. We need the church. We do. We need the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We need the Bible. We can't live without it. We got to have these things God has provided. But none of them on their own are designed to get us to heaven. Only Jesus Christ, repentance of sin and personal faith in Christ can get, take us to heaven. So that's very important that we understand that. In the Old Testament, they look forward to a coming Savior. In the New Testament, we look back to a Savior who has come. But it all centers on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all there, folks. We just look back to a, a Savior who's come. They look forward to a Savior who would come. And he was prophesied throughout the, the Old Testament. Now then, how does God deal with his people? Well, we made mention of this in the Old Testament. The believer lived under law, bathed in the blood of bulls and goats. But now, since Christ died and rose again, the believer lives under grace, bathed in Jesus' blood himself. Please understand, we are today living under grace, not under law. That's very important we understand that. Now, the laws of God are good, but we live under grace. Does that mean we don't have to, uh, to, to obey the Lord? No, that's not what it means. Turn back a page in Corinthians to chapter 10 and look please at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. Paul wrote, All things are lawful for me, but now watch what he says. But all things are not expedient. What does that mean? The word expedient means to get your foot out of a tangled mess. You're walking or running and your foot gets caught in something and you can't move. You're, you're stuck. You've got to get your foot out of that trap, out of that mess in order for you to continue. And Paul says, although all things are legal for me, not everything is expedient. Not everything is going to help me along the way. And these days, you know, uh, the lotto is very legal in Canada. And you can legally go out as a Christian and spend as much money as you want on the lotto business until you've wasted all your money. But the bottom line is it's not expedient for you and for me. It's not going to help our faith. It's certainly not going to put bread on our table and help our families. It's going to drain us of resources. You say, but what if I win? Even if you win, you'll lose. No matter if you, you, you play and lose or play and win, you've lost. Because you think, well, I'm going to win. And supposing you do win a great big dump truck full of money. Every relative and every creep is going to hunt you down. You won't be able to live a normal life. You, you can't. The money will set you up as a target. Even in your own family, the family will squabble over the money. And the lusts and desires will come to the surface. And that money will ruin you. 
There are so many stories, sad stories of people that got ruined with the lotto. But it's legal in Canada. It's legal if you're over the, the, the age proper to go and buy alcohol and take it home and consume it. That's legal. But that's not going to help you to be more like Jesus. That's not going to be expedient for you. In this country, it's now legal, if you go about it properly, to buy dope, marijuana, weed. It's not expedient. It's not going to help you at all. In fact, these things are going to pull you down, not bring you up. Oh, but I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I can do as I please. I'm a big boy now. I've got freedom. Hey! Yeah, you'll be saying that all the way to jail or all the way to an early grave or something because there are so many things in life, although legal in the country in which we live, are not expedient. Don't get involved with them. Do not get involved with them. They'll tear you down. There's a lot of pornography goes on in this country. You know that. And they make it legal in certain places. And you can go into certain businesses and buy that stuff and get involved with that stuff. But that stuff is wicked and it's of the pit of hell and it'll pull you down. It's not going to build you up. It's not going to help you in any way whatsoever. There are no families that got put back together because of beer and alcohol. There are no marriages that got strengthened because of all the involvement in, in the wicked prostitution and, and uh, pornography. It doesn't work that way. These things are vices. These things are, are traps and snares. And although they may be legal in Canada, I'm telling you they're not expedient for anyone, let alone for the Christian. And so it's very important that we understand we've got a Bible that tells us right from wrong. And if we would just keep reading our Bible and just keep praying, Lord, show me what I need to do and what I need not to do, the Holy Spirit will show you. He will definitely show you because He loves you. And so... In Romans chapter 6, Paul wrote these words. He said, For ye are not under law, but under grace. Now, by the way, let me pause for a moment. Because we're not under law, we're under grace. We've got great benefits. It's wonderful to be under grace. You know, you've got a salvation that's a bona fide gift. God's not going to give it and take it and give it and take it and give it and take it. He's given it and it's yours, folks. And in Ephesians, he wrote, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Nothing's going to break the seal. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. If we were sealed with man, with man's power, that can be broken. Man's promises can be torn up. They're not worth the paper they're written on. But we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Nothing's going to break that. If you're here tonight and you're thinking, oh, I hope I don't lose my salvation. Listen, you can... Rest easy, because you're secure. It's not you trying to hold on to God, it's God holding you in His hands. And that's good to know. For the first couple of years of my Christian life, I thought I could lose it. I was told I could lose it, and I thought I could lose it. And it worried and troubled me so much. But when I finally understood that God says I can't lose it, oh, peace came to my heart. Peace like a river. And I thought, man, I don't have to worry about it. I can live for Jesus now. Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect. Well, I'll tell you that. You just got to ask my wife. She'll tell you he's not perfect. That's very true. I'm not perfect. But I'm saved. I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect, but I've been given a gift that God's not going to take away from me. 
for my own good. He's not going to take it away from me. Settle it tonight, folks, in your heart. You're saved through Christ. So he says here in verse verse 14, for you're not under law but under grace. And then verse 15 in, in Romans chapter 6, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? We can sin now and get away with it. Hey, I'm not going to lose it. I can go out and commit pornography. I can go out and get drunk. Hey, I'm not going to lose it. Should we sin because we're not under law, we're under grace? Should we sin? And he answers his own question with the the two strongest words, the two most powerful words put together. It's like an atom bomb saying, absolutely not. And it's the words, God forbid. It's the strongest possible way in the Scripture of saying no. We're not to sin because we're under grace. We're not to do that. And understand that if we do, we're not going to fool the Father. And He loves us so much, He's going to do what is necessary to chasten us. Some of us may, may get stood in a corner. Some of us may get a spanking. Some of us may lose privileges. Some of us may be grounded. I'm using these expressions because we understand them, you know, but... God loves us as His children, and if we get involved with sin, He's going to do something about it. He won't turn a blind eye. He sees everything. Sin is serious business, and it must be repented of quickly, lest we be chastened. And so, rule number four, and I've labored it, you can understand why, but rule number four is that there must be no unconfessed sin in the heart. Folks, I'm going to do something I rarely ever do. I'm going to stop preaching. I'm stopping the sermon here. I got one more rule that I see in Scripture to help us, but we don't have time tonight. We run out of time, folks. This is good stuff. It's good stuff. Next month, We celebrate the table of the Lord once a month around here. And so next month, we'll look at rule number five. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but uh, you'll need to come here for that. But rule number five will be next next month, I think. I've got to double-check that on the calendar. I think, but I'll let you know for sure. I'll tell you what. Let's do this. Let's spend a minute or two now with the Lord. This will be our invitation. Right where you're sitting. This will be our time of, of, of quietness and sincerity with the Lord. You know, the Bible does tell us to examine our hearts. Very important. Let a man examine himself. Now, essentially, that means make sure you're saved, but listen, let's take it the next logical step and make sure that we're saved and we're living for Jesus. So we'll just have some quiet time.